President Trump and old Joe head to Iowa, New York, and California keep working to make their states less livable, and female soccer players push for equal pay. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. I mean, this time in the calendar, it must be a fun place to be Iowa, really, because you just sort of sit around and all these famous people come through and want to talk to you. And they act like you're important because they want your vote. And then they leave and never see you again. And that, that must be pretty great. We'll get to all of that in just one second. First, let's talk about Birch Gold. So first of all, I know the folks at Birch Gold. They are wonderful folks. They're people that I trust. In quarter one, gold purchases by central banks were the highest in six years. In the face of the, de- the dollar's declining stature, what are you doing to protect your savings? Become your own central bank. Move some of your savings to gold. Hedge against inflation, hedge against uncertainty and instability with precious metals. Gold is a safe haven against uncertainty. My savings plan is diversified and yours should be as well. The company I trust with precious metal purchases is Birch Gold Group. And right now, thanks to a little known IRS tax law, you can even move that IRA or eligible 401k into an IRA backed by physical gold and silver, which is perfect for people who want to protect their hard-earned retirement savings from future geopolitical uncertainty. Birch Gold Group has thousands of satisfied customers, countless five-star reviews, A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Go contact Birch Gold Group right now. Get a free information kit on physical precious metals. See if diversifying into gold and silver makes sense for you. Nobody's talking about taking all your money and putting it in gold and silver. We're talking about diversification, hedging against inflation and uncertainty. This comprehensive 16-page kit reveals how gold and silver can protect those savings, how you can legally move that IRA or 401k out of stocks and bonds and into a precious metals IRA if that is something you are into. To get that no-cost, no-obligation kit, get all the information. Text Ben to 474747. Again, text Ben, my name, to 474747. All righty. So yesterday in Iowa, President Trump and Vice President, former Vice President Joe Biden, they all descend on Iowa with their walkers. And then they proceed to give speeches. And whoo boy, was it a show. What a magical show. Now it comes at a time when the country is unbelievably divided. I don't mean like we're going to have a civil war, we're all going to get out into the streets with our guns. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about politically divided. I mean, we have rarely been politically divided the way that we are politically divided today. According to the New York Times, right now is the first time in more than a century that all but one state legislature is dominated by a single party, which is incredible. And there are 50 states in the union, and that means that 49 of them have a legislature that is not split, which is an incredible, incredible number. Most legislative sessions have ended or are scheduled to end in a matter of days in capitals across the nation. Republican-held states have rushed forward with conservative agendas. Those controlled by Democrats have pushed through liberal agendas. Single-party control is not exactly easing the tone of political discourse, specifically because everybody also wants the federal government to control everything. This is the biggest problem. It's one thing to have states that are Republican and states that are Democrat, and they basically leave each other alone. But that is not the way our modern media culture works. If Alabama passes an abortion law, then the wonderful, ethical betters in California decide they can't do business in Alabama anymore and declare that the federal government must be involved. The fact that federalism was designed specifically so that states can have different opinions on important issues, this seems to have bypassed everybody's perspective at this point. In Oregon, where Democrats control state government, Republicans boycotted sessions for several days over disagreements about taxes and gun control. In Tennessee, where Republicans are in charge, Democrats staged a walkout during a heated and chaotic budget debate, and Republicans ordered the police to go find them. In New York, the state legislature has passed several laws that have been blocked in previous years by Republicans who lost control of the Senate earlier this year after a decade in power. Those measures included a law extending the period of time for victims of childhood sexual abuse to file lawsuits and several others restricting the use of firearms. 
And in Colorado, where Democrats dominate the Capitol, Republicans were so upset about the stream of new laws being passed, they demanded each bill be read aloud to slow the pace. Democrats responded by having five computers simultaneously read bills. The computers were able to whip through hundreds of pages in minutes. The result, of course, was gibberish. Colorado Republicans sued and won in court. Democrats then went on to pass legislation, including reducing greenhouse gas emissions and creating a reinsurance program to lower healthcare costs. So things have gotten incredibly, incredibly divisive. Basically, the states along the coast, particularly the Northeast, have Democratic control. And the states along the West Coast, Washington, Oregon, California, New Mexico, those states have solid Democrat control and every other place is solid Republican control. The only, the, literally the only legislative con- control that is split in America is Minnesota. That's the first time since 1914 that that has happened. So the reason that I say this is because this is going to be reflected in our national election. There's a feeling on the left that if Republicans win, then Republicans will exert their control and assert that control and take a dominant political position in America. Now, the fact is that that is not exactly what Republicans have done. I mean, from a federal level, what Republicans have done basically is lower the amount of regulation on business. They've passed a tax cut and they've put into place some judges who generally are disposed to leave legislatures to their own devices. Originalists tend to be a lot more friendly to the legislative branch exercising its powers than folks on the left are. The fact is when conservatives are in control, states have more power. But Democrats in states across the country actually believe that the federal government should be in control of everything. And so they are seeking to seize control of the commanding heights of the government and then use it against conservatives across the country. So against this backdrop, we have what is sure to be an insanely divisive presidential election. And the numbers right now show bad polling for President Trump, unfortunately. So what are those polls worth? We're going to find out. We're a year and a half out. The only thing about the polls that is certain is that President Trump is highly unlikely to break 50% in a national election, which means that he's going to have to hope that a Democrat dramatically underperforms the way that Hillary Clinton dramatically underperformed in 2016. Even then, she won the popular vote by two and a half million votes. So Democrats are going to have to dramatically underperform, and Trump might even need a third-party candidate because the fact is that according to the latest polls, Trump is stuck somewhere between 40 and 42%. Apparently, President Trump is fulminating over the polls. According to the New York Times, they say that President Trump is basically instructing his aides to fib about poll numbers. Quinnipiac University conducted national head-to-head polls matching up Trump and some of the leading Democratic presidential hopefuls. None of the matchups are particularly good for President Trump. He holds a, he, he is behind all six of the Democrats who are polled between five and 13 points. Joe Biden up 53 to 40 on him. In this national poll, Bernie Sanders up on him 51 to 42. Even Cory Booker and Pete Buttigieg are up on him 47 to 42. There's some limited head-to-head polling that we've seen in some key early states, as the Washington Post reports. Trump trails by as much as double digits in both Michigan and Pennsylvania. There's one poll, in a Q poll, that had him trailing Biden in Texas, even, by four points. All of this, of course, dependent on the economy remaining strong. If the economy were to take a dump, then President Trump is in serious, serious trouble Of course. The New York Times is reporting that President Trump is quite upset with these poll numbers, despite his sort of outward antipathy for poll numbers. According to the New York Times, late at night using his old personal cell phone number, President Trump has been calling former advisors who he has not heard from in years, eager to discuss his standing in the polls against the top Democrats in the field, specifically Joe Biden, whom he describes in those conversations as too old and not as popular as people think. Now, I think that those critiques are probably half right. And the fact is that Joe Biden will be 97 thousand years old 
actually, come election day. He'll be 78 come election day 2020. And President Trump does have significantly more energy than Biden does on the campaign trail. Nonetheless, Trump is obviously perturbed by the polls, according to this reporting. After being briefed on a devastating 17-state poll conducted by his own campaign pollster, Tony Fabrizio, Trump told aides to deny that his internal polling showed him trailing Mr. Biden in many of the states he needed to win, even though he's also trailing in public polls from key states like Texas, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Now, that makes sense. President Trump is at least an expert marketer. I mean, this is what he is good at. He is good at being a brander. And being good at branding yourself very often involves fibbing about your brand, which President Trump has been known to do from time to time. See, for example, Trump stakes. But apparently Trump is instructing his aides to say publicly that there's other data that is showing him doing well. The fact is that whatever public data there is, is not looking particularly great at this point. Trump's own campaign pollster, according to Political Wire, wrote a memo about expanding the map to give President Trump more options for getting to 270 electoral vote. Fabrizio says that New Hampshire, New Mexico, and Nevada, which are all states that Trump lost in 2016, are highly competitive. He says that Minnesota is also highly competitive. But this sounds a lot like Democrats who in 2016 were ignoring Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in favor of exactly those same states. The fact is that if Hillary Clinton had to campaign in Michigan in the late days of the election, she was in serious trouble. If President Trump is spending the late days of the election campaigning in New Hampshire, New Mexico, Nevada, and Minnesota, that is not a good sign. Oregon, of course, if the idea is that he's going to be campaigning in Oregon, um, my goodness, that is not going to be good news. Now, the fact is that his own internal pollsters are apparently saying that he is lagging behind in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, that those are states that are difficult to win. And when people talk about expanding the map, usually what that means is they're not able to hold the map that they need to hold. Oregon is so blue, it hasn't voted for Republican for president since 1984. CNN has obtained that memo from Fabrizio about ideas for expanding the map. A senior Trump campaign source tells CNN they are considering hiring staff to test the waters in Oregon after hearing from Fabrizio and talking to the National Republican Congressional Committee counterparts. The Trump campaign is not under an illusion that Oregon is winnable at this point, but they know that taking, retaking states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, even Iowa, where Trump has been lagging, those are not exactly sure bets. A senior advisor said, if we are a month out and a previous victory like Michigan is not possible, it would be nice to know other states are options. Okay, so they're not obviously giving up on these states, nor should they. But none of these poll numbers are particularly good for the president leading up to this. Now, meanwhile, inside the Democratic Party, Joe Biden continues to maintain a very large lead in most of these polls. There's a morning consult poll from yesterday that shows Biden up at 37%. Now, that poll's a bit of an outlier because Biden, in many other polls, has been lagging closer to 30%, even dropping in a couple polls below 30%. According to this morning consult poll, it's Biden 37, Bernie Sanders at 19, Elizabeth Warren at 11, and Buttigieg at 7. Kamala Harris also at 7. Those have been consistently the top five candidates in virtually all of these polls, beta, lagging all the way down there at 3%, and Spartacus, Cory Booker, also lagging way down there. There is a poll that is out that is very bad for, for Bernie Sanders. I'll give you the numbers on that poll in just a second. First, let's talk about making your business better. So here at The Daily Wire, when we have an employee who is doing a bad job, there's one thing that we do before we do anything else. We throw up a job description on ZipRecruiter. This is not a reference to any of you guys, you know, the people working on the show. But if it were, what we would be doing is going to ZipRecruiter.com right now and putting up a job listing because Job listings are what ZipRecruiter does. And finding a new job is one of the best things you can do with ZipRecruiter too. So if you're looking for a job, 
then ZipRecruiter is the way to do that in reverse. What if you had your own personal recruiter to help you find a better job? Now, ZipRecruiter's technology can do that for you. You just download the ZipRecruiter job search app, let it know what kinds of jobs you're interested in, and then the technology starts doing the work. The ZipRecruiter app finds jobs you'll like, puts your profile in front of employers who may be looking for somebody like you. If an employer likes your profile, ZipRecruiter will let you know, so if you're interested in the job, you can then apply directly. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated job search app. My listeners should download the free ZipRecruiter job search app today. Let the power of technology work for you. Don't wait. The sooner you download the free ZipRecruiter job search app, the sooner it can help you find a better job. Go check them out right now, ZipRecruiter.com. Download that ZipRecruiter job search app to your phone and get the job that you've been looking for. Okay, so back to the polling data. According to a new Democratic poll from The Economist and YouGov, Bernie Sanders has actually now fallen behind Elizabeth Warren, which is the only poll that I have seen that actually drops Sanders behind Warren. There may be one other where they're basically even, but this is the only one I've seen where Sanders has dropped all the way behind Elizabeth Warren. This poll has Joe Biden at a very low 26% and Elizabeth Warren all the way up to 16%. There's no question that Elizabeth Warren is experiencing a bit of a boomlet that is largely driven by media coverage that keeps talking about how many wonderful ideas Elizabeth Warren has. They keep saying that her campaign slogan is, she's got a plan for that. Yeah, you know what? It turns out that Stalin had a plan for the economy. Didn't go great. Mao also had a plan. He called it the Great Leap Forward. Plans do not mean that the plans are good. There are lots of bad, bad plans. Lots of bad people in history and lots of fools in history have had plans. Elizabeth Warren has lots of plans, but the media like to say that she's super intelligent. She's so smart. She's so charismatic. Anybody who says Elizabeth Warren is charismatic, I, I have serious doubts as to your judgment of both character and charisma. But nonetheless, because of the media coverage, Elizabeth Warren is picking up ground and Bernie Sanders is feeling stodgy. He's feeling a little old at this point. It feels as though the Bernie Sanders phenomenon has run its course a little bit. So Elizabeth Warren is picking up ground in those polls. Right now, if you're Joe Biden, the big threat is that Bernie Sanders starts to bleed support to Elizabeth Warren. And suddenly Elizabeth Warren is riding up there in the mid-20s and, for example, takes Iowa. And New Hampshire, of course, is right next door to Massachusetts. So presumably she would do well in New Hampshire as well. That could be bad news for Joe Biden. So Joe Biden is finally having to get out there on the campaign trail and work, which is the first time we've seen this with Joe Biden before. Joe Biden has really not had to do any work at this point. He's basically attempted to avoid the limelight because he figures that all the other Democrats are going to club each other to death and he's going to stand over there to the side and grin at them. He's like Cersei Lannister, just sort of sitting over there drinking and watching everybody else kill themselves up in the north. That's been his plan. But I think that that plan is beginning to break down. And so Joe Biden finally has to go out on the campaign trail. The problem for Joe Biden is twofold. Joe Biden has a record that is Barack Obama's record. And Joe Biden has a record that is Joe Biden's record. So if you look at Joe Biden, not at Donald Trump, not Elizabeth Warren, not at the alternatives, but if you look directly at Joe Biden, dude's a weak candidate. He's been a weak candidate every time he's run for president, which is why he's done so three times and he has never made any headway. So that means that his focus when he goes out on the campaign trail has to be on President Trump. Good news for him is that for Democrats, their passionate hatred for President Trump means that he'll be speaking to them in exactly the sort of language they want to hear. However, all the other Democrats will too. As I've said, I've said this all along, I think that Joe Biden's campaign is a slow bleed. I don't see him consolidating support over the course of this campaign because I don't see a lot of people dropping out and people shifting their votes to Biden. I think there are a lot of people who are going to shift their votes from other candidates to Elizabeth Warren or shift their votes from Pete Buttigieg to Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or something like that. Okay, so Joe Biden goes out on the campaign trail in Iowa, and he has to be as extreme as humanly possible about President Trump. So 
his entire campaign thus far has been gaffes and saying mean things about Trump. That's his entire campaign. Some of those mean things are true. Some of those mean things are false. We'll start with the most bizarre statement that Joe Biden made yesterday while he was in Iowa. This bizarre statement was that President Trump was literally an existential threat to the republic. I believe that the president is literally an existential threat to America for three reasons. One, uh, he is a genuine threat to uh, our, uh, our core values. And if you wondered about that, remember what happened in Charlottesville. I never thought I'd see that happen in my lifetime again. And what happened? When he was asked to comment on it, he said, quote, there were very fine people in both groups. No president of the United States, Democrat or Republican, has ever, ever, ever said something like that. Okay, he's leaving real heavy on Charlottesville. That stuff is baked into the cake at this point. I criticized President Trump extraordinarily heavily on Charlottesville, and he deserved it. He deserved to be ripped on it. But if the idea is that President Trump is embracing white supremacists, he specifically did condemn white supremacists. He then made the bizarre statement that there were good people, on, very fine people on both sides, implying that there were people who were marching who are not white supremacists about the Robert E. Lee Monument. There's been no evidence that those people exist. But with that said, literally an existential threat to the country. Now, I understand this is Biden's pitch. Biden's pitch is Donald Trump is so scary on a personal level. He's so terrible on a personal level that you should vote for me because I'm old Joe and I'm standing right here. I'm standing right here just being Joe Biden. I understand he's basically he's, he's performing the Medusa campaign. He turns himself to stone. He stands there and he hopes you'll vote for him. I got it. We all get it. But literally an existential threat to the country. Truly. Okay, then Joe Biden makes the pitch that President Trump is rough on farmers. Now, here is the problem for Joe Biden when it comes to his President Trump is rough on farmers routine. The problem is that in states like Iowa that have a lot of folks who do not share Joe Biden's political values, a lot of those folks are not going to shift over to Joe Biden simply because Joe Biden tells them that, that President Trump has been hurting them on trade. Now, again, I think it's a huge mistake that President Trump has been engaging in these tariff battles. They do disproportionately harm his potential voting base. So what Joe Biden says here, this particular line of attack, actually does have some merit. Right? If he's going to win votes in Ohio and in Michigan and in Pennsylvania, going after Trump on tariffs is actually not a bad way to do it. Here is Joe Biden attacking Trump on policy. This is more of a rich vein for him. President Trump is, uh, is in uh, Iowa today. And uh, because... Uh, uh, and I, I hope his presence here will be a clarifying event because uh, Iowa farmers have been crushed by his tariff war with China, and no one knows better than the folks in Iowa. He thinks that being tough uh, is great. Well, it's really easy to be tough when someone else absorbs the pain. Uh, farmers, manufacturers, the automobile industry. My goodness, he does sound old, doesn't he? I mean, just, just on an aesthetic level, he sounds old. He sounds wandering. He sounds meandering. I mean, now, now I guess that's the pitch. Again, the pitch is that you know me. I'm old. I'm 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 safe. But he does sound non-energetic. He sounds like he's basically falling asleep at the podium. President Trump is a high-energy dude. I mean, that's one thing that you can say for President Trump. President Trump, that is a dude who does not sleep. That is a dude who never stops tweeting. That is a guy who is the energizer bunny. I mean, when it comes to just the amount of energy and electricity he puts off. It's an enormous wattage. Joe Biden is a low wattage guy. That line of attack is not, a, is not a bad line of attack for him, but that wasn't exactly the most stunning pitch. I mean, play the beginning of that again. 
He sounds like he's going to keel over in the middle of this statement. President Trump is, uh, is in uh, Iowa today. I mean, that, that's like me after I've had seven Valium guys. I mean, that's, I'd almost have to be comatose to have that level, that low level of energy. And that will tell in a presidential campaign. Then Biden goes back to his original pitch. His original pitch, of course, is not that Trump is bad on policy because the economy is really good, because we don't have any existential crises on the foreign level. Instead, he goes back to his original pitch, which is that Trump is a very, very bad, mean, very bad man. He says that President Trump inspires thugs around the world. Now, here's the problem with this particular pitch for Joe Biden. And this is where you get back into every critique that he makes of President Trump, other than the specific volatility of Trump's personality, can be turned around back on Joe Biden because Joe Biden does have a long record. When Biden says that Trump inspires thugs around the world, just keep in mind Iran, Vladimir Putin, China, thugs around the world found the Obama administration to be their best friend. They found the Obama administration to be exorbitantly kind. Bashar Assad is still in power because of Barack Obama. The fact is that thugs around the world slept easily at night knowing that Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. How do you think they'll sleep at night knowing that Joe Biden is president of the United States? As I've criticized President Trump when it comes to his kid glove treatment of Kim Jong-un, one of the worst people on planet Earth. I've criticized President Trump heavily when it came to his ridiculous, asinine, and disgusting statements that the United States has acted similarly to Vladimir Putin. But if we are talking about folks who have coddled dictators in terms of policy, there is no comparison between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. So if the idea here is that Trump inspires thugs around the world, thugs everywhere were waking up knowing that they lived easier because Barack Obama was president of the United States. Here's Joe Biden, though, trying to make the counter case. The news media, all of them back there, they're all fake news, he says. No, everybody thinks that's kind of, you know, it doesn't mean much. But look at the people copying his ways all around the world, whether it's Orban in Hungary, whether it's in the Philippines. There are thugs all over the world using the same kinds of language he's using now. And what, what are we saying to the world? What are we saying to the world? So the you, don't have to, you, know, you don't have to like Viktor Orban, by the way, the, the head of Hungary, but he is the democratically elected leader of Hungary. And you, you weren't flying $150 billion in cash to him. You were flying $150 billion in cash or $100 million in cash, whatever it was. A billion dollars in cash. I'm trying to remember the exact amount. You were flying pallets of cash over to the Iranian regime. So spare me the crocodile tears about President Trump inspiring dictators around the world, Joe Biden. We'll get to Joe Biden's most extreme pitch in just one second. Again, I, I do not think that this campaign is going to last the test of the Democratic primaries. I really don't. I think these early polls are deceptive. We'll get to that in just a second. First, let's talk about your online security. So here is the reality. I'm online 16 out of every 24 hours, whether I'm on my phone, whether I'm on my computer. And that means that I'm exposing myself to cybercrime. But that is why I have ExpressVPN. Now, you may think that cybercrime is something that happens to other people, people like me. You may think that nobody wants your data. After all, do you have a podcast? But the fact is that everybody wants your data. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest and cheapest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you may as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a giant billboard for the rest of the world to see, which is why I've decided to take action. To protect myself from cyber criminals, I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data, hiding that public IP address. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps. They run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection, that only takes one click. It is super simple. And I use ExpressVPN all the time because I can safely surf on public Wi-Fi without being snooped on or having my personal data stolen. It costs less than seven bucks a month, and you can get the same ExpressVPN protection 
that I have. Protect your online activity today. Find out how you can get three months for free at expressvpn.com slash Ben. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Ben for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Ben to learn more. Okay, so finally, Joe Biden has to make his most extreme pitch. So, so far, you have heard him criticize President Trump over and over and over. Not an affirmative idea in the bunch. He has never said anything that he will affirmatively do. His speech last night mentioned President Trump by name some 76 times. His entire angle is, don't talk about me, talk about that guy, which isn't a terrible political angle in a very polarized political time, but it also leaves him open to the Elizabeth Warrens of the world who have a plan. Because can anyone explain why Joe Biden is running other than he doesn't want Donald Trump to be president? He sort of suffers from the Hillary Clinton problem. So Hillary Clinton kept running and running and running because she felt that the world owed it to her. This is why she had a video in the middle of the campaign in which she said that she couldn't believe she wasn't beating Donald Trump by double digits. The real reason that people didn't like Hillary Clinton is that people don't like candidates whom they do not understand the rationale for. If, if you see a candidate and you ask that candidate, why are you running? And the person goes, the chances you're going to vote for that person are very low. And right now, the only reason Joe Biden is running, presumably, is because he thinks he can win. And he did the whole, I have to be talked into this thing. Elizabeth Warren knows why she is running. Bernie Sanders knows why he is running. Kamala Harris knows why she is running. Joe Biden, I'm not even sure he knows what day it is based on this audio. So Joe Biden has to come up with some sort of grand vision for things. So what is his grand vision? His grand vision is that he is going to cure cancer. Now listen, all for it. Cancer, horrible, terrible, terrible disease. I have close relatives who were lost to cancer at very young ages. My dad had a, had a, a case of, of skin cancer. Like, I, I understand. Cancer is just awful. And I know Joe Biden lost a son, Bo, to brain cancer. I, I get all of that. Still, the notion that we are five minutes away from a cure to cancer so long as the federal government spends a lot of money on it is just a bunch of crap. It's just not true. The fact is that researchers all over the planet are expending billions of dollars on cancer research today. The problem is not that they have insufficient funding. Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't fund cancer research, although I wonder whether there actually is the constitutional authority to fund a lot of the things that we all find good. But with that said, when Joe Biden says what he's about to say here, you have to just shake your head. Because what he's about to say is that if he is elected, cancer will be cured by the time he leaves office. That is not a thing that Joe Biden can guarantee. Also, if Joe Biden has a cure to cancer in his back pocket, maybe he should you know, hand that over. I don't know why he'd hold the cure to cancer hostage here based on his presidency. So this is a very bizarre pitch by, President, by Vice President Joe Biden. When loss occurs, you know uh, that you know, people come up to you and tell you, I understand if you lose a, a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a family member, and, uh, um, and lots of times you feel like saying, you know, they say, I know how you feel, and if they hadn't, you look at them, you, you know they mean well, but you say, you have no idea how I feel. But when it happens to you, you know. I promise you, uh, if I'm elected president, you're going to see the single most important thing that changes America is we're going to cure cancer. What in the world? How can you make that promise? How? Is there a way to, to make that promise? I mean, that's, that is, that's an insane statement. I mean, uh, President Trump, I, I hate it when politicians pander. I really despise it. When President Trump went to Iowa during the primaries in 2016, and he said to all of the farmers, that he would expend enormous sums of cash on ethanol. And Ted Cruz at the same time went in there and said, we're not spending any cash on ethanol. And then Cruz went Iowa. I thought that was a gutsy political move. To go out there and tell people the lie 
that grandma is going to live because you elect me president. Joe Biden does not have godlike powers. He cannot lay on the hands and cure cancer if he is elected president. And if he can, maybe he should stop wasting his time running for president and he should start wandering the land laying on the hands. These kind of promises are such crap from politicians. It's why people don't trust politicians. I understand it's coming from a place, from a, a father who lost a son to cancer. So he, above all, should know. You don't raise people's hopes by telling them that if you're elected president, you're going to cure cancer. Also, is he going to cure poverty and all disease? Is he going to be able to alleviate climate change with the snap of a finger? I, I'm so tired of this kind of stuff. It really is silly. Okay, so Joe Biden, that was his pitch in Iowa. Trump sucks. Trump's mean. Trump's terrible. Ignore my record. And I'm going to cure cancer. Not the world's most solid pitch. Okay, then there is President Trump. So President Trump yesterday was in Iowa. And he is so much more energetic than Joe Biden. It is not even close. So he let off the day before he even got to Iowa. He did a little bit of a tete-a-tete with the reporters on the White House lawn. This is his favorite thing to do. He walks through. The reporters are standing there. And Trump sees a camera and like a moth to the flame. He just moves on over to that flame. And he is asked about Joe Biden. And President Trump does what President Trump does. He's a, he's a loser. He's a dummy. He's an idiot. He's a moron. President Trump making convincing case against Joe Biden. Joe Biden thought that China was not a competitor of ours. Joe Biden is a dummy. Biden, uh, who's a loser. I mean, look, Joe never got more than 1%, except Obama took him off the trash heap. And now it looks like he's failing. It looks like... Uh, his friends from the left are going to overtake him pretty soon. I have to tell you, he's a different guy. He looks different than he used to. He acts different than he used to. He's even slower than he used to be. Okay. <laughs> Again, it is true that he is slower than he used to be. And this is going to be Trump's attack on Biden, is that he, it's the same attack he used on Hillary Clinton, that she's too slow, she's not energetic enough. He used it on low-energy Jeb as well. And Trump does have an inerring instinct like it or hate it, he has an enduring ability to sink the knife directly in the chink in somebody's armor. You know, it, it, it's very funny. When you have members of your family, one of the things that tells you whether you like somebody or not, when they're members of your family, you know where all of the kind of holes in their armor is, and you deliberately avoid those because you don't want to be mean to the person. President Trump has no such compunction when it comes to politics. If there is a way for him to stick the knife in, he will stick that knife in. He is an expert at it. Okay, we're going to get to more of President Trump's pitch in Iowa in just a second, then we'll get to the other Democrats. And then I have to talk about governance in Los Angeles and New York. We have a lot more coming up for you in just a second. First, let's talk about student debt. So I have relatives who are saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt. And listen, I understand why you would take out student debt. When I was in college, I had some student debt. It makes sense to take out student debt when you need to get through college. But at the same time, millennials have so much debt, it's hard to get out from under it. Did you know that millennials have three times as much student debt as their parents? Well, you can get your student debt loan, your student loans refinanced right now with SoFi. This is a smart move. SoFi is the leading student loan refinancer in the United States. They've refinanced hundreds of thousands of student loans. It's fast. It's easy. It's all online. You can check your rate in two minutes. You can lock in a fixed low rate. Refinancing those student loans could save you thousands of bucks. Lowering your interest rate or choosing one of SoFi's flexible terms could help you save those thousands. When you refi your student loans with SoFi, you also get access to SoFi membership giving you access to exclusive benefits to help you get ahead with money, life, and career. So go lock in a fixed low rate today at SoFi.com slash Ben. That's S-O-F-I.com slash Ben. If you got lots of student debt, go get it refied right now. SoFi.com slash Ben. SoFi Lending Corp. CFL number 6054612. Go check them out right now. SoFi.com slash Ben. Okay, we're going to get to the rest of President Trump's pitch in Iowa. 
Democrats crying wolf at every opportunity. We'll get to all that in just a second. First, you have to go subscribe over at dailywire.com. For $9.99 a month, you can get a subscription to Daily Wire. When you do, you get the rest of this show live. You also get Andrew Clavin's show live, Matt Walsh's show live, Michael Moles' show live. You get two additional hours of me every single day, three hours. You get to hang out with me, which basically means you're with me all day because we do the show in the morning and then we have the radio show in the afternoon. You get to ask questions in the mailbag. We have a Daily Wire backstage later today, which means you get to hang out with me for like nine hours today. Basically, I never leave you. You can't get rid of me. That's If you subscribe, you, you get all of those wonderful things. With the annual subscription, you get this, the very greatest in beverage vessels, the leftist here is hot or cold tumbler, which, of course, is magnificent. It really is a terrific beverage vessel. You will enjoy it. You should also subscribe because, as I've been saying for weeks now, if you actually want to protect shows that you love from the vicissitudes of the evil left, which is coming after shows to destroy them, to deplatform them, to go after their advertisers, you really should subscribe and become part of the team. It really means a lot to us, On means a lot to me on a personal level. I appreciate it. But not only that, it means that you're fighting back against the dominant, the, the dominant homogeneity of the media. Go subscribe right now over at dailywire.com. Make that happen. You get the Sunday special early on Saturdays. We have a great Sunday special coming up for you this week. So all sorts of goodies for you. Go check us out. We're the largest, fastest growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. Okay, so President Trump in Iowa, his, his weakness in Iowa is not going after Biden. Right? Going after Biden, President Trump is an expert at. His weakness in Iowa, as it is in many of these other states, I've been saying this for weeks, if you, are, if you want to see Trump reelected, his tariff wars are very bad for the economy, and they specifically harm a lot of people in the areas that he needs to win. They harm people in Wisconsin. They harm people in Michigan. They harm people in Pennsylvania. They harm people in Iowa. If you are using inputs from foreign industries in your product, as they do in Michigan, it's going to hurt you when we tariff that. If China raises its tariffs on soybeans, that's going to hurt a lot of farmers in Iowa. That's just the way that all of this works. So President Trump goes to Iowa, and he's on the defensive. And so he has to defend his trade platform. So here is President Trump yesterday in Iowa saying that he pledged to fight for farmers, and he has done so. As a candidate for president, I pledge to support our ethanol industry and to fight for the American farmer like no president has ever fought before. And we're winning these fights. And you're great patriots, I will tell you. We're winning these fights. Okay, well, that may be true that we are winning the fights, but we are going to have to see the results of those fights. The, the Mexican tariff battle, if he got a win out of that, still sort of unclear, then that is a win. The Chinese trade war, he's going to have to make a strong, forcible case why that needs to happen or what a win looks like, or he is in serious danger of basically being blamed by everybody who is damaged by the tariffs. If you want people to make sacrifices, you have to explain why they are making the sacrifices. So here's Trump trying to explain that. He says, we're reversing decades of failed trade policies. We're reversing decades of failed trade policies, opening up new markets and fighting to give our farmers the fair and level playing field they deserve. You never had a fair playing field for the last 15 to 20 years. You were taken advantage of by stupidity, by incompetence, by people that don't care. Who knows? You were really treated very badly, but you're not being treated badly anymore. You see what's happening. Okay, well, the problem is a lot of these farmers do see what's happening, and what they are seeing happening is trade barriers go up on the other side of the Pacific with the Chinese government now preventing the importation of tremendous amounts of American agriculture. So that pitch is only going to go so far. If he can achieve his goals, if he gets the Chinese to lower those trade barriers, then good. And this is where Trump's final pitch comes in on the trade issue. He says, we're knocking down the barriers to the products grown in the United States. If he achieves that, 
then yes, that will be a win for Iowa. If he does not achieve that, then he's got a problem. My administration is knocking down barriers to products made, grown, and raised in the USA, not only on the farm, but all over. Just recently reached an agreement to eliminate restrictions and expand exports of American beef, you saw that, to Japan by up to $200 million a year. You saw that. There's somebody selling beef over here. Okay, so President Trump is a little vulnerable on the trade stuff. Most of his record, he's not particularly vulnerable on. He's mostly vulnerable on the personality stuff. And that's why you're seeing everybody in the Democratic Party claiming that Trump himself is some sort of existential threat. Pete Buttigieg, for example, suggested that climate change is an existential, this is just yesterday. He said that climate change was an existential threat. Joe Biden said that Trump was an existential threat. Jay Inslee released a press release saying that climate change was an existential threat. Apparently everything is an existential threat. So they're saying that everything is an existential threat. Okay, so now we move over to the other Democrats. We've seen Trump versus Biden and how that shakes out. Trump will attack Biden on his low energy. He'll attack Biden on his record as Obama's vice president. Biden will attack Trump based on his personality and hope that a return to normalcy campaign prevails. The other Democrats are gonna campaign at Trump from the radical left. And this is why they are not running as strongly as Joe Biden is. If any one of them embraced anything remotely resembling moderation, they would be in pretty strong position against President Trump and probably they'd be in pretty strong position against Joe Biden. It's amazing to me that not one Democrat has the stones to actually run as anything remotely approaching a centrist, and Joe Biden is being pulled to the left as well. The center of gravity in that party is the Michael Moore left. It's insane. It's insane. Elizabeth Warren, who's picking up all sorts of support in the Democratic Party, was asked to explain why she's not a quote-unquote democratic socialist. Now, democratic socialist has a couple of different descriptions. One is actual socialism, as in like Venezuelan, USSR, Cuban socialism. The other is free markets, but a lot of redistributionism. So that is Norway or Denmark. Now, Elizabeth Warren has run away from the label because she doesn't really like the label democratic socialist because she feels like if she caves to it, then she's in Bernie Sanders territory. But here she is struggling to explain why she is not that. You're a capitalist at a time when democratic socialists have become popular. What is the difference between you and the democratic socialists? Where do you disagree? So all I can do is tell you what I believe in. Because I, I, can't, I can't tell you about anybody Do else. you think you don't disagree? I don't know. She doesn't know. Wow. Well, where's her plan for that question? So she, she doesn't know because she is basically just parroting Bernie Sanders. And then you have Kirsten Gillibrand, who, as I said yesterday on the radio show, the problem with Kirsten Gillibrand is that she's basically Vincent D'Onofrio from Men in Black. You know, Vincent D'Onofrio, that character from Men in Black, do you remember this? He's an alien. He comes down from space. He lands, and then he kills a farmer and takes over his body. He wears the farmer's body like a skin suit. Okay, Kirsten Gillibrand is that in politics. She's mimicking a politician, but she's not actually a good politician. So the skin wears weird. And like her face is not on straight. That's not a critique of her actual face, by the way. That is a metaphor, okay? So here's Kirsten Gillibrand saying what she thinks Democrats want to hear in the most awkward possible way because she thinks she has to run to the radical left. I think there's some issues that are, have such moral clarity that we have as a society decided that the other side is not acceptable. Imagine saying um, that it's okay to appoint a judge who's racist or anti-Semitic or homophobic. For all of these issues, um, they are not issues that there is a fair other side. There is no moral equivalency when you come to racism. And I do not believe there's a moral equivalency when it comes to changing laws that deny women reproductive freedom. 
what in the actual hell is she talking about? So she is now comparing being pro-life to being an actual racist who wants to appoint racists to the bench. This is where she thinks the Democratic Party is. Now, I, I said in 2016 that President Trump spoke conservatism as a second language, meaning he wasn't all that familiar with it. And so it led him into these weird sort of cul-de-sacs of thought. So there was that point in the campaign in 2016 where he said he wanted to prosecute women for abortion because he thought that's what pro-lifers wanted to hear. That's Kirsten Gillibrand with the left. She thinks that the left believes that abortion is on par with anti-racism. She might be right. Maybe that's what the left actually thinks. That's not what Americans actually think. So this is the problem for Democrats. Their real attack has to be against President Trump and his character. It has to be on on the basis that they are moderate and non-scary, but they can't stop themselves from being scary. Now, speaking of Democrats being unable to stop themselves from being scary, the situation on the border continues to simply metastasize. President Trump has requested border funding. Democrats keep turning down that border funding and then complaining about the results. Dick Durbin, senator from Illinois, has been stalwart and staunch in his unwillingness to provide ICE with the resources that ICE actually requires and that DHS actually requires in order to solidify that border. Here's Dick Durbin then complaining about the results of his own failed policies. We cannot face this crisis effectively with a revolving door policy in the leadership of the Department of Homeland Security. In fact, every position at DHS with responsibility for immigration or border security is now being held by a temporary appointee who has not been confirmed by the Senate. The White House has not even submitted nominations for these positions. Despite all of President Trump's tough talk and meanness, our southern border today, by every measurable standard, is much less secure than when he took office. Okay, so if Dick Durbin's critique is that Trump isn't staffing up fast enough at the top levels of DHS, which is a dumb critique, if you actually want to know why the border is not secure, it's because you won't fund beds for people at the border. It's because you will not fund Border Patrol. The Washington Post reporting today, for weeks, President Trump's request for billions in funding to manage the migration surge at the U.S.-Mexico border has been ignored by Congress. Democrats who control the House have been struggling to reconcile their own internal divisions over the spending request, as some in the party question whether the situation on the southern border is as dire as portrayed by the administration. This has led to a lack of urgency on Capitol Hill to address a problem leaders in both parties agree is worsening and raising the prospect that the funding request could languish. Congress failed to approve a similar proposal by Barack Obama in 2014, but lawmakers in both parties seem less focused on the issue, even though the number of migrants being apprehended at the border is far higher than it was even five years ago. Not until Tuesday was there some apparent progress in Congress where Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced that the Appropriations Committee would begin working on the $4.5 billion package next week. Members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus met privately to discuss what language they could accept as part of the administration's spending request, but It is unclear whether any border package endorsed by Democrats will pass muster with the Trump administration, which has repeatedly asked Congress for legal changes to expand detention capacities and tighten asylum policy, but has been rebuffed. Democrats want to leave this border open. This is an area where I I really believe that most Americans agree. We want the border secure. We want people who cross the border not to be released into the interior before they have been held for some sort of asylum hearing. We are not interested in giving everybody green cards who crosses the border illegally. I do not think these are particularly controversial issues. The fact that Democrats keep making them controversial and then suggesting that it is the fault of the Trump administration that folks are being held in supposedly inhumane conditions on the border. You guys are the ones who aren't funding this. You guys are the ones who are holding up the funding. Instead, Democrats are focused in on trying to humiliate the administration as opposed to actually solving the problems for the American people. So they bring in the head of the of the Border Patrol, Kevin McAleenan, 
and they ask him whether Trump told him to violate the law. Here's Amy Klobuchar, who, is she still running for president? I think she is. Nobody's heard of her in a while. She, she's just been gone. But here she is asking Kevin McAleenan whether Trump asked him to violate the law. Has anyone from the White House asked you to violate the law? No, no one has asked me to do anything illegal. Is a president instructing subordinates to violate the law and promising to shield them from legal consequences by pardoning them consistent with his oath of office and the requirement in the Constitution that he take care that the laws be faithfully executed? I've never been asked to do anything unlawful, nor would I. Democrats are putting all of their focus into tearing down President Trump and none of their focus into actually solving the problems of the country. You know, President Trump now can campaign against a do-nothing Congress. Frankly, I'm shocked that he hasn't done so already. Harry Truman in 1948, when he was running against Thomas Dewey, was running a really uphill campaign. And he campaigned against Congress. He said, this Republican Congress won't give me what I want. He ended up winning a very narrow election victory over Thomas Dewey. This would be a time for President Trump to look at Congress and say, listen, we all know what's going on at the border. You know what's going on at the border, and you won't give me the resources necessary. And it is obvious what Democrats are doing. Senator Robert Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, said, quote, I think that the president, in his actions and in his words, creates an over-dramatization that then leads people to think, well, this isn't as significant because he's just throwing out red meat to his base. The other thing is, I think there would have been action already had there been reasonable requests and, you know, a willingness to constrain themselves. I have yet to hear a counterproposal from the Democrats that does anything like lock up the border. Congressional negotiators came close to reaching a deal on the administration's border spending request in time to attach it to a broader disaster aid bill that passed last month but ran out of time. Submitted to Congress on May 1st, the Trump administration's spending request included $3.3 billion for humanitarian assistance and $1.1 billion for border operations. But since then, members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, who want to ensure that the money would go toward genuine humanitarian purposes and not to increase detention of asylum seekers or fund for-profit detention facilities. Well, what exactly would that look like? So in other words, you have a, an actual sector of Congress that wants people released into the interior as opposed to keeping people detained. All of this could get changed with a simple law from Congress. The Flores settlement, that ruling from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that says that you have to release people, that could be overturned by a simple act of Congress. Democrats don't want to do any of this stuff because Democrats prefer for this to be a political hot button issue. There's a lot of talk about Republicans not wanting to solve the immigration problem because it's a political hot button. It is precisely the opposite. When Democrats had complete control of Congress for two years, they had a near supermajority in the Senate. When they had all of that, they did nothing on immigration. Why? Because they prefer that immigration and illegal immigration remain a festering problem in the United States so that they can then condemn Republicans as heartless and evil and nasty. Many of the Democratic members of Congress are still trying to downplay the situation at the border. Representative Juan Vargas of California says, there's definitely an uptick. There's no doubt about that. I mean, is it as gigantic as they say? No. Is it as disruptive as they say? No, it's not. They always say never waste a crisis. Well, this is a small crisis. President Trump is trying to make it into a big one and not waste it. So when Trump says that Democrats don't take this stuff seriously, how this is not in a political ad for Trump already is beyond me. Americans do agree, at least that we have to secure our border. That much they agree on. All righty, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things that I like, as I say, my wife and I have been watching a spate of screwball comedies. The best of these screwball comedies is a movie called The Awful Truth with Cary Grant and the insanely, insanely talented Irene Dunn, who really could do anything. One of the great underrated actresses in Hollywood history. The Awful Truth is uh, the, the film is about Cary Grant and Irene Dunn getting divorced, but they're still in love with each other. And so they basically try to sabotage each other's love interests outside of themselves. The movie is hysterically funny. It really does hold up. Go check out The Awful Truth. There's a little bit of the trailer. 
there can't be any doubt in marriage. The whole thing's built on faith. If you've lost that, well, you've lost everything. Yes, I suppose when that's gone, the marriage is washed up, isn't it? Do you mean that? Uh-huh. All right, then, that settles it. Oh, I guess it does. I wouldn't go on living with you if you were dipped in platinum. So go on, divorce me. Go on, divorce me. It'll be a pleasure. Divorce you? Are you crazy? Do you think I'd drag that music lover into court to show people the man you preferred to me? All right, oh. then I'll divorce you. I believe it's customary anyhow for the wife to bring suit. It has something to do with the husband being a gentleman, if you know what I mean. Oh, never mind that stuff. Just get on with the divorce proceedings. I can hardly right. wait. I'll call up our lawyer right now. All right, here. If you don't mind my using him, I don't know anyone else. You get around so much more than I do. That's so. Hello? Hello, Lucy. What's that? Divorce? You and Jerry? Now, now, Lucy. Don't do anything in haste that you might regret later. Marriage is a beautiful thing, and you Why can get it every... Why can't we call you back after we've finished eating? Please be quiet, will you? The <laughs> <laughs> movie's really good. It's, it, it's worth checking out, and as I say, it really, it really holds up. Irene Dunn is terrific in it, and Cary Grant, of course, is incredibly charming. So check out The Awful Truth. Okay, other things that I like today. So there's this Netflix series that has come out called When They See Us, and it's about the Central Park joggers, uh, the Central Park jogger and the Central Park Five. So this has long been a hot point of contention in New York City. Donald Trump famously called for the death penalty to be applied to the Central Park Five. That was a group of five black men who were basically accused of rape of a jogger. And then later, there was DNA evidence. A person came forward and made an admission that he was the person who committed the rape. Only his DNA was found on the woman. The way that this has been taken by the press is that none of these other five people were involved in anything bad, and all of this was basically black men being railroaded in New York City for no reason. Well, now Linda Fairstein, who's a prosecutor in the case, has a piece in the Wall Street Journal that is pretty devastating to this narrative. Here's what she talks about. She says, at about 9 p.m. April 19th, 1989, a large group of young men gathered on the corner of 110th Street and 5th Avenue for the purpose of robbing and beating innocent people in Central Park. There were more than 30 rioters. The, women, the, the woman known as the Central Park jogger, Trisha Maley, was not their only victim. Eight others were attacked, including two men who were beaten so savagely they required hospitalization for head injuries. Reporters and filmmakers have explored this story countless times from numerous perspectives, almost always focusing on five attackers and one female jogger. But each has missed the larger picture of what happened that terrible night, a riot in the dark that resulted in the apprehension of more than 15 teenagers who set upon multiple victims that a sociopath named Matthias Reyes confessed in 2002 to the rape of Miss Melee, and that the district attorney consequently vacated the charges against the five after they had served their sentences had led some of these reporters and filmmakers to assume the prosecution had no basis upon which to charge the five suspects in 1989. So it is with filmmaker Anna DeVerney in the Netflix miniseries When They See Us, a series so full of distortions and falsehoods as to be an outright fabrication. It shouldn't have been hard for Mr. Verne to discover the truth. The facts of the original case are documented in a 117-page decision by New York State Supreme Court Justice Thomas Galligan in sworn testimony given in two trials and affirmed by two appellate courts and in sworn depositions of more than 95 witnesses, including the five themselves. Instead, she has written an utterly false narrative involving an evil mastermind, me, and the falsely accused, the five. I was one of the supervisors who oversaw the team that prosecuted the teenagers apprehended after that horrific night of violence. Mr. Verne's film attempts to portray me as an overzealous prosecutor and a bigot, the police as incompetent or worse, and the five suspects as innocent of all charges against them. None of this is true. Consider the film's most egregious falsehoods, writes, this, writes the prosecutor. When they see us, repeatedly portrays the suspects as being held without food, deprived of their parents' company and advice, and not even allowed to use the bathroom. If that had been true, 
Surely that would have been brought, those issues would have been brought up and prevailed in pretrial hearings on the voluntariness of their statements. They didn't because it never happened. In the first episode, the film portrays me at the precinct station house before dawn on April 20th, the day after the attacks, unethically engineering the police investigation and making racist remarks. In reality, I didn't arrive until 8 p.m., 22 hours after the police investigation began, did not run the investigation, and never made any of the comments the screenwriter attributes to me. Mr. Vernade depicts suspects Yusuf Salam and Corey Wise being arrested on the street. In fact, the two detectives went to the door of the Salam apartment on the night of the 20th because both had been named by other rioters as attackers in multiple assaults. The film claims that when Mr. Salam's mother arrived and told police her son was only 15, meaning they couldn't question him without a parent in the room, I tried to stop her demanding to see a birth certificate. The truth is that Salam himself claimed to be 16 and even had a forged bus pass to prove it. When I heard his mother say he was 15, I immediately halted his questioning. This is all supported by sworn testimony. Mr. Verne would have you believe the only evidence against the suspects was their allegedly forced confessions. That is also not true. There is, for example, the African-American woman who testified at the trial and again during the 2002 reinvestigation that when Corey Wise called her brother, he told her he had held the jogger down and felt her breasts while others attacked her. There were bloodstains and dirt on clothing on some of the five. And there are the statements of more than a dozen of the other kids who participated in the park rampage. Although none of the others admitted joining in the rape of Trisha Melee, they admitted attacking male victims and a couple on a tandem bike. Each of them named some or all of the five as joining them. Nor does the film note that Mr. Salam took the stand at his trial, represented by a lawyer, chosen and paid for by his mother, and testified he had gone into the park carrying a 14-inch metal pipe, the same type of weapon that was used to bludgeon both a male school teacher and Miss Melee. Mr. Reyes's confession changed none of this. He admitted being the man whose DNA had been left on the jogger's body and on her clothing, but the two juries that heard those facts knew the main assailant in the rape had not been caught. The five were charged as accomplices, as persons acting in concert with each other and with the then unknown man who raped a jogger, not as those who actually performed the act. In their original confessions, later recanted, they admitted to grabbing her breasts and legs. Two of them admitted to climbing on top of her and simulating intercourse. Semen was found on the inside of their clothing, corroborating those confessions. Ms. Reyes' confession, DNA match, and claim that he acted alone require that the rape charges against the five be vacated. I agreed with that decision. I still do. But the other charges for crimes against other victims should not have been vacated. Nothing Reyes said exonerated these five of those attacks. And there is certainly more than enough evidence to support those convictions of first degree assault, robbery, riot, and other charges. So again, there are these media narratives that are created around particular crimes. Very often, they're not telling you the whole story. So go check out that whole story. Okay, time for some things that I hate. So things that I hate today, I talked about this a little bit yesterday on my radio show, which is why you should subscribe, because you get all sorts of content that you won't get on the podcast. Okay, here is the, the new pitch, is that women in the World Cup are being paid less than men, and therefore, tremendous sexism, America's a terrible place, yada, 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 yada. There's an editorial, uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post today called, The Biggest Fight Facing the U.S. Women's Soccer Field Isn't on the Field. Despite far greater success than the men's national team, the women have had to go to court to try to secure equal pay. There's an op-ed in the New York Times called Sex, the World Cup, and Breaking Up the Boys Club by Emily Ryle teaching philosophy at the University of Gloucester, Gloucestershire. Great sport requires only three things, excellence of skill, uncertainty of outcome, and a crescendo of drama until the last second. Gender or sex is irrelevant. Well, it's relevant to some of those things, right? Excellence of skill, gender and sex may in fact be relevant to that, considering that men are generally better at sports than women because they have different musculature than women and different skill sets than women in the same way that a Little League game is not the same as a Major League Baseball game. Certain sports are not the same men and women play them. The WNBA is not the same as the NBA. There's a reason no one is paying to watch women shoot layups, as opposed to, you know, dunking and shooting three-pointers and all of that. 
And yet there is this push that is on to suggest that women are being victimized by the World Cup and by the U.S. soccer program because they're not being paid the same as the men. This is absolutely silly. It's absolutely silly. MLS is a successful league in the, in the United States, the, the, the soccer league. Uh, the, the MLS league has been successful for 10 years. It took a while for it to grow, and now it's doing quite well. After every Women's World Cup soccer victory, there is an attempt to start a women's league. Every single time it fails. Every single time. That's because there just is not enough of a crowd of people who are willing to watch women play soccer. And the reason that there is not that loud, that, that huge crowd of people, and that we all pretend to love women's soccer every four years, and we pretend that it's, it's super serious sporting and all this. The Olympics always draw a lot of attention. The World Cup always draws a lot of attention. The Women's World Cup always draws a lot of attention. But how much attention does it actually draw? Well, in 2010 in South Africa, the Men's World Cup earned $4 billion. The Women's World Cup earned $73 million. For those who are not good at math, that means the Men's World Cup earned 54 times what the Women's World Cup earned. The reason for that, again, is because people aren't as interested in women playing soccer as men playing soccer, not because they are sexist, but because women are not as good at soccer as men. The Women's World Cup national team lost 5-2 to two to an under-15 boys club from Dallas a few years ago. The Australian women's national team lost 7-0 to an under-15 boys team in Australia. People say, oh, those were just scrimmages. Okay, imagine the men's World Cup team losing to an under-14 boys team. Is that a thing that would happen unless they actually threw the game? Of course not. Men and women are different. Pretending that men and women are not different ends in stupidities like the idea that women and men have to be the same for performing absolutely differently on the playing field. But this is how you end up with this piece from Emily Rial saying, in a soccer match last year, a ball tumbled aimlessly into the penalty area, almost like a confused pedestrian about 13 yards from the goal. Two players, caught off guard by its awkward bounce, missed it. But it was seized upon and just as quickly thumped into the top corner of the net by a storming attacker's foot, hit with such zip. It seemed the goalkeeper couldn't see it, much less stop it. It's the kind of goal you watch again and again, pressing replay on your phone. It's the kind of skill that led the attacker who scored the goal, the American soccer star Lindsey Horan, to be among the first players nominated for the first women's Ballon d'Or prize, the sport's most prestigious annual award for best player, that for 61 years was awarded only to men. There's arguably more excitement to this Women's World Cup than any before it, but the specter of the best player in women's soccer not participating on its biggest stage looms large, a battle being jointly led by the Australian and American teams to equalize the $370 million gap in World Cup prize money is making headlines too. The American women are also suing separately their national federation over purposeful gender discrimination based on continued pay gaps, despite years-long periods they point to in which the women's team appeared to earn more for the national federation than the men's. The collective effect has been a reigniting of perennial debates over the nature and perception of women's sport. Again, if we cannot acknowledge that there is a difference between the men and the women, then I do not know why we have eyeballs and functioning prefrontal cortexes. But this lady basically, she says, the semifinal between Serena Williams and Justine Hanin in the 2003 French Open was as nail-biting a drama as any face-off between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal has been at that same tournament. That's completely subjective, but what does that actually have to do with the viewership? I would not tune in specifically for a match between Serena Williams and Justine Hanin. I wouldn't. I would tune in specifically for Federer and Nadal because they are both better players than Serena Williams and Justine Hanin. By the way, Serena Williams will acknowledge this. It's Serena Williams before she sort of got on the woke bandwagon with regard to men and women have exactly the same skill sets. She would openly admit that she couldn't play in the men's league because she is not a man and does not have the same skill set as men. She's the best woman to ever play. She is better than nearly every man who has ever lived except for every active professional men's tennis player. She ranks, by statistics, among second-tier college men's players. 
That is not a rip on her. She is, again, the best woman to ever play. But that is not the same thing as saying she is one of the best men to ever play. This is also silly. But I guess it, it goes part and parcel with the attempt to obliterate sex as a valuable statistic and as a valuable, uh, as a valuable distinction to be made in, in terms of biology. Okay, final thing that I hate today. This is so dumb and, and just ridiculous. So the New York Times is now reporting on lefties who are trying to go on these birthright trips to Israel, and they are complaining about it. So birthright trips are these free trips to Israel. I have a lot of friends who have gone on birthright. My wife went on birthright at one point. There are a lot of young Jewish kids who go to Israel to visit Israel, and they are paid for by birthright. But now there are a bunch of young Jewish kids who want to, college kids, who want to go on birthright and then ignore the program of birthright, which is to inculcate a love for the state of Israel to teach them about what is good about the state of Israel. And they're angry at birthright because birthright has not scheduled in visits to the occupied, the so-called occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip. Okay, if you want to do that, then why don't you have the Palestinian government pay for you? How about that? When I give money to a charity and when I sponsor people to do things, I expect them to do the things I sponsor them to do. This whining where you expect to be able to take somebody else's money and then use it exactly as you see fit is pretty unbecoming and astonishing. Birthright never made a promise that you would be able to go and listen to Palestinian propaganda from a terrorist group. If you choose to do that on your own time, enjoy yourself. Okay, it's all you. Alrighty, we'll be back here later today with two additional hours of programming, so you should go subscribe. If not, we'll see you here tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Mike Joyner, executive producer, Jeremy Boring, senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey guys, over on the Matt Wall Show today, uh, we, you know, Congress wants to give itself a raise and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been at the forefront of this fight, insisting that she needs a raise because if she doesn't get a raise, then, then what's going to happen is that congressmen are going to end up being corrupt if they don't get a raise. I want to explain why that argument is insane. And also, I have a different idea about what we might do about congressional pay, uh, which I will share with you. Uh, also, Justin Trudeau, um, there's a video of him babbling nonsensically. And I want to play that for you on the show today, just because it's, I mean, really funny, honestly. And finally, 60% of male managers say that they're uncomfortable with women, working around women in the workplace and working one-on-one with women. Gee, I wonder why. We'll try to get to the bottom of that mystery today over on the Matt Walsh Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 